It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. What is the job of a bomb technician? Why is this role in the military so important? And what kind of training does it take? We'll get to all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. our veterans and active duty military for their service all the time and there are so many jobs within the military that take incredible bravery one of those jobs is the role of a bomb technician or an eod tech bomb techs are certified through extremely rigorous training i mean they're in charge of handling dismantling and disposing of bombs and explosive packages. So it makes sense. Now, to achieve their mission, bomb techs are trained to use a variety of different tools from robots to x-ray machines. These tools help them to identify, diagnose, and disrupt suspected or actual explosive devices. And if the job wasn't difficult enough, think about what they have to lug around. They're not just carrying their courage on their backs. No, no, no. Their suit weighs about 90 pounds, and is filled with a variety of safety devices. And all of that doesn't even usually have any communication equipment because the radio frequency could trigger an explosive device. So what kind of training do bomb technicians go through? How do they prepare for upcoming missions? And how do they communicate during these missions? There are so many questions. So here with me today is someone who has firsthand experience in the role, Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Johnny Joey Jones. Before Joey was a Fox Nation host, a podcast host, and a military analyst for the Fox News Channel, he endured eight years of active duty and two combat deployments. So he's the perfect person to talk to. Plus, his is one of my favorite people to talk to of all time. Joey, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I love that uh, it working together today means you won't be like running across a field with tandem skydivers <laughs> landing and like risking your life to, to talk to me. So I like this a little better. So Joey completely kicked some butt on on Veterans Day. He went skydiving and landed on the front lawn of the World War One Museum and Memorial, and it, it just was amazing. And I, I, the the camera guy was like, "Run to him, run to him," because everyone was like getting unhooked, right? And so yeah. I'm like, "Okay, let's go, let's go." And so I'm running across the lawn, and it was just it was so cool to watch you do that. And I mean, I it's it's crazy that you guys were able to land right in that location no that was really cool well i think the funniest thing about that whole gig was i jumped before but i only ever jumped solo um i'd never jumped tandem and so you know with my legs on i'm like six foot one six foot tall and the person walks up to me and they're like hey this is the person that's going to jump you and she was like five six maybe five <laughs> seven and i was like i don't know if this works like am i supposed to take my legs off is that why you got in the uh, but what I learned is when you're in the, the front of the tandem, your job is to keep your legs picked up. So it doesn't matter who's taller. And you have to have a combined weight under like 300 pounds. So the bigger you are 
as the tandem person, the smaller the person actually jumping you is. So that was kind of a cool thing I learned. That's really awesome. I didn't know that. Um, I've jumped before also, and I'm just like naturally a very tall person, but I didn't really think of who was behind me. So at least you, at <laughs> least you thought about it. <laughs> now that was such an amazing experience to, to watch you guys do that. You joined so many other veterans as well um, from, you know, each of the major wars. So, uh, you know, uh, that's why we love that. I'm, I'm going off on a tangent because I love reminiscing about that moment. But bomb technicians, you were one in the Marines. Um, and that's what we're talking about today. So, you know, this is this is such a dangerous and um, important job. And so I'm, I'm happy to have you on to talk about it. So, Joey, first of all, can you just tell me a little bit about what you did in the military? Let, let's start with that. Yeah, you know, the Marine, each service gets to handle their bomb techs or what we call EOD, explosive ordnance disposal. Each service gets to handle it differently, like how they bring their airmen, sailors, soldiers, or Marines into the job field, how the job field's managed and integrated into the service, and how it's used uh, either in combat or here at home or wherever. Um, and the reason why is each service kind of has a different domain that they're in charge of. The Navy has underwater ordnance. The Air Force has all the nuclear and air-to-ground ordnance. The Army has all your heavy artillery. And then the Marine Corps, our niche has become IEDs, these improvised explosive devices that are um, utilized against us now kind of as, as a primary weapon. And really what that means is these are bombs that are homemade and they're made from stuff you would find in your house or at most at Walmart. And because of the nature of the Marine Corps, which is to kind of be the first to fight and push through into these towns and villages, we generally are the first to intercept these IEDs. And so that's become our like area of expertise. And another thing that we do different than the other services is that we're the only service that inerts ordnance. So we can take live mm. conventional ordnance made by the U.S. or other countries and take the explosive out of it and use it to train. And the history of that is essentially the Marine Corps didn't have a lot of money and we couldn't afford to go buy it from Ford Motor Company or Boeing without the explosive already in it. And uh, and so now we, we have retained that ability, which is a very dangerous thing, but very important thing of inerting. And so that kind of gives you a flavor of what EOD is. It, it's We all go through the same school. We learn how to mitigate explosive hazards while we're training on base and on the battlefield because our own bombs exist on our base and in our training. And um, our job, our really our, our creed, is to protect life, limb, and property by putting ourselves in harm's way and taking whatever explosive hazard there is uh, and what we call rendering it safe. And I'll let you talk for a second, but rendering it safe, not disarming, because those are two different things. Interesting. Okay, so um, I do want to get to the difference between rendering it safe and disarming. Um, but but just real quickly, so you that was an awesome breakdown. I, I just want to break it down a little bit more. So can you give me an example, like what exactly a bomb technician does? Can you take yeah, me through and, a, a and, situation, maybe? <laughs> yeah. The types of explosive hazards are, um, and, and there are others, but these are the main ones, our conventional ordnance that we take to battle. So if we shoot a, a rocket and that rocket doesn't uh, detonate when it lands, now it's an armed rocket warhead out on the battlefield, perhaps something that locals or we have to intercept. And so EOD, my job has the technology and understanding to go and take that rocket apart or make it safe again to move it and blow it up somewhere else. The second thing would be if we intercept conventional ordnance manufactured by, say, Russia or Yugoslavia or China or Korea on the battlefield that our enemies are using against us, and we have a database and an understanding and a procedure 
that if they fire a bomb or a rocket at us and it doesn't go off, we can render it safe. And that may be disarming it. It may be just blowing it in the place that it sits, or it may be taking it completely apart. And then the third, now most common part of our job, and there are others, but these kind of, if you're putting yourself in Iraq and Afghanistan, these are, are the majority of what we do. The third and most common are improvised explosive devices. And so these are the homemade bombs that our enemies make on the battlefields that we fought in over the last 20 years. And our job there, again, is to document everything we see and do and be able to predict where these are, how they're configured, and develop procedures to, to go. And usually, we're taking them apart because the enemy is smart, and they'll put these IEDs near infrastructure that we use and the local townspeople use because if they, if we step on it and blow it up, which normally it's, it's victim-operated, which means we step on it to make it go off, but if we do something to, to get ourselves blown up by one of these bombs, not only does it hurt us, but by hurting the infrastructure, it uh, hurts our mission and it makes the people in that town not like us anymore. Mm. And the worst case scenario and, and the one that really has been the, the most difficult for me to even live past is when the townspeople step on those bombs, especially children. Mm. And so our job then is to take these explosive hazards on the battlefield um, and, and render them safe so that we can continue our mission. And then some of the other responsibilities we have, if a plane goes down, there are explosive hazards on that plane. Some of them are bombs and some of them are actual black powder explosives we use to operate that plane. And we have to go out even before crash fire rescue sometimes and make an ejection seat safe for someone to, to, to respond or make an airplane crash site safe for the firemen or crash fire rescue to come in. We have to go out anytime anything blows up. We go out on the battlefield to do a post-blast analysis. Generally speaking, if the enemy puts one bomb in the ground, they put two. So if Marines or soldiers step on an IED, we respond to make sure there isn't another one in the area. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot that you guys have to train for. And I, I think about that, even just a post-blast analysis, I guess that's something that maybe a regular person doesn't necessarily think about. Maybe something explodes, but there's a good chance, like you said, that there's another one. So how do you even go about that? Like how are, if you're going to go um, onto this, th this battle field, you're going to, you're going to approach one of these explosive devices. How do you know that it's not just going to explode in that moment? What, what cautionary measures do you have to take? You know, it all starts back at the EOD school in Destin, Florida. And so there are, it changes, there are more than a dozen sections to this school. And you learn everything from the chemistry that makes up explosives. Uh, you learn the physics behind a blast radius and a frag radius and how much ex TNT equivalent explosive matrix it takes to push a one ounce piece of iron 300 meters. And you learn the different types of math necessary to calculate using probabilities, how far back you need everybody and what kind of equipment you need. You learn how to use a robot, even though we don't really use them overseas because they're, they're cumbersome. And in Afghanistan, we can't get heavy equipment places. Um, you learn how to jam uh radio frequency devices. And so you learn how that if they're trying to use a cell phone to set a bomb off, we learn how to jam that cell phone so it can't set that bomb off. And uh, and so you learn all these principles and foundational parts of it. We learn nuclear, radiological, and chemical. I can I can detect sarin gas and you know, things like that because all of these are implemented through explosive devices. Uh, and so you learn these different facets of knowledge and enough of it, I say, to be dangerous and effective. You don't become a rocket scientist, 
but you learn what rocket scientists do. And you do all of this so that when you go on the battlefield, you have a gambit and an abundance of knowledge. And then from day one, EOD techs or bomb techs have documented into um, reports that are templated what they saw, how they saw it, the state it was in. They added pictures, visual descriptions, um, and procedures that they took on that individual IED to render it safe and to approach it safely. And every single time an EOD unit in regular operations intercepts an IED, they write one of these reports. It can be as long as 20 pages, as short as five. And all of those reports go to a database. And then other EOD techs take those reports and they use them and uh, essentially use an algorithm to find trends. And then they report those trends back to us. So we know, hey, these are the types of IEDs they're implementing in this area. Hey, these are how they're putting them into the ground. They're putting the power source 20 feet away over here and they're putting the power source two feet away over there so know that and there are different reasons why those things matter so when we start working in a, in a battlefield area we call it an area of operation we have a basis of knowledge to go on but i guarantee you that such a chess game when i showed up in afghanistan in march 2010 the ieds were made and implemented one way Three months later, they were made differently and implemented differently because mm -hmm. they saw our mitigating tactics. So it's a constant chess and cat, cat and mouse. But what you have are other EOD teams working, reporting back and, and working together so that you can share information. It's recess time, but we'll be back soon. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. So when you say you work with other EOD teams, is that within the Marine Corps or do you work with the Navy or the Army, um, their individual ones as well? It's, it's all the above. So what happens is when a Marine division deploys to Afghanistan, they take a necessary amount of EOD support with them from the Marine Corps. But once you get to the battlefield, you may have a, a an area of operation that's, that the Marine Corps is operating in, but then right next to it is an area of operation that the Army is operating in. And so we, even though we draw arbitrary battle lines, the enemy doesn't. So you might have a bomb maker who's making bombs for both of those areas. And so we have a database and a, and a system of communication to where EOD, all EOD working ground operations in that entire regional command reports back to the same place. Now, the majority are going to be Marines because of the way we structured and deployed. The second most will be Army. Then you'll have some Navy and some Air Force. But their jobs generally take them other places. Um, and, and we didn't have as many Navy and Air Force working in Afghanistan. I think when I was there, we had 86 Marine EOD techs, a couple dozen Army, um, and then we had uh, maybe a dozen Air Force, and I think we had six Navy EOD techs in the entire regional command. Wow. I mean, it really, I'm sure, takes a lot of knowledge. And, and if you you guys are, you know, keeping track of these EODs or these uh, IEDs, correct. Wait, this is actually good. This is a good time to bring <laughs> up what is the difference between IED and an EOD? From my understanding, it seems like EOD is, um, you know, the actual person who is, is um, doing the job. But yeah. I'll let you answer this because I do think for <laughs> non-military folks, it is easy to get confused between an IED and an EOD? You know, this is a really funny question. There's actually a layered kind of jab in here that I'll explain because it's really interesting. So EOD is a term that's been around since World War II, really, and it's explosive ordnance disposal. Our first mission was to go by, behind the front lines and 
disarm bombs that had been dropped but didn't detonate near, you know, churches and, and things in Europe that we wanted to preserve. And so we couldn't just let these bombs blow up because when the Germans bombed Berlin or bombed uh, London, per, per se, or even when we went into Berlin, there were bombs sitting next to important things that were hundreds of years old. So it was worthwhile to teach guys and gals how to take them apart. So we were explosive ordnance disposal. Our job was to dispose of explosive ordnance of all kinds. And then you fast forward in the IRA starts making homemade bombs and using them against the British military and British police in their fight in the 60s and 70s. And we developed the term improvised explosive device. And the reason why that's so important is we don't have a fuse or a mechanism that we can go look at a book on that teaches us how it's made. Now we have homemade things that could work any number of ways. And so improvised explosive device is a homemade bomb not unlike what they use in Afghanistan, not unlike what the IRA used to make, not unlike what they used in the Boston bombing or Timothy McVeigh used in Oklahoma City. That's an IED. That is a homemade bomb. And so EOD technicians or bomb technicians have the responsibility of rendering safe IEDs or homemade bombs. There's one little jab in there, and that's that prior to 2001, the main EOD mission, say, in the Marine Corps was very vast. We would go and we'd go out on our own. Um, bombing ranges and we would render safe bombs that we fired and didn't go off. We would go to Korea and Vietnam and Cambodia and safe minefields and ordnance on planes of our own that were shot down so we could bring the remains of our own soldiers back home because those explosive uh, hazards still existed. We would go and support uh, different organizations looking for radiological dispersal devices, things that might try to poisonous and people do that you can still hospital and road work equipment that's highly highly radioactive and use it to poison people they buried one under apartments one time and it and it gave people radiological poisoning so our our entire array of responsibility was big and then we go to war in iraq and afghanistan and they need every one of us to go over there and take ieds apart so there's kind of a slight that a lot of older eod techs will use against guys like me and say you're not an EOD tech, you're an IED tech, because that's all you've ever known. Um, and usually it's made in jest, but it's it's kind of funny. <laughs> I know military members like to joke around. That's that's good. I know it is. It is hard when you, because the military does have so many acronyms. It's sometimes difficult to um, remember what, what each of them means. Real quick, so I don't know if we, we got into this enough. Maybe uh, just very simply then, what is the difference between rendering something safe and disarming it? Because in my head, I'm like, okay, well, if you're rendering it safe, you basically are disarming it. Yeah, so basically what you said was you felt like rendering something safe is disarming it. And my answer back to you is a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. And so it's not <laughs> that these aren't the same thing. It's just that one takes things further than the other or stops shy of the other. And you the smart, reason why Alec. that's important is when we have <laughs> conventional ordnance, especially things that we manufacture, we put arming mechanisms into the bomb so that it, the best way to explain it is like if you ever played the game Mousetrap, there's all these different things that have to happen before the ball gets in the cage or the mouse gets to the ball. I can't remember how it works. And our bombs are made the same way. If we built this big bomb that was huge and powerful and had 2,000 pounds of explosives, and all you had to do was hit a switch, and then it could blow up at any moment, that's called arm, then it would be really unsafe to travel from here to a battlefield overseas. So we put all these different mechanisms within that bomb that uh, that are used mm -hmm. to arm it to the point that most bombs or rockets have to be fired at the enemy 
and the centrifugal force or the impact inertia used to shoot it through the air is actually what arms it. So you can't even just hit a button and do it. And so when we talk about disarming, what we mean is that bomb would still have all the explosives and components in it, but we would go in and we would, all those arming mechanisms, we would reverse them. So we could pick that thing up and move it somewhere to render something safe. You may disarm it, or you may put a piece of C4 on it and blow it up where it sits, or you may be able to just pick it up as it is and move it, or you may be able to shoot it with a gun from afar that's called smutting and uh, disrupt it that way. You may flood it with with distilled water uh, to separate the components. There's all these different tactics and procedures that go into rendering it safe that may or may not disarm it. Because if you put a piece of C4 on it and just blow it where it sits, you didn't actually disarm it. You just blew it up, uh, mm-hmm. but you did it in a controlled way when you wanted to. And so rendering safe is any procedure we use to make that battlefield scene safe again. And disarming is a specific act of making a bomb or a projectile or a rocket safe to move around. So how do you know when to do which one? Most of the things on the battlefield are improvised explosive devices. And so they don't generally have arming mechanisms. They generally are built really the exact same way that $2 flashlight from the dollar store is built. That's called a loop circuit. You have a power source, you have a switch, and in that flashlight, you would have a light bulb, but in a bomb, that would be a blasting cap to set off explosives. And a loop circuit just means you can follow the path, the current of the electricity in a loop. You can look at it and see it. The first break in the loop is the battery you put into it. The second break in the loop is the switch you put into it. The third break in the loop is the actual blasting cap. And so when we approach any improvised explosive device, the very first thing we're trying to do is locate the power source and remove it from the loop circuit. Because if we can remove the power source, none of the other components can function as they're designed to function. So the likelihood of it blowing up without a battery is pretty low. Would you say that um, a homemade bomb is more dangerous than one that's been manufactured or vice versa? Generally speaking, the likelihood of rendering safe a homemade or an improvised explosive device without incident is a lot lower than a conventional piece of ordnance because we have specific tools designed for conventional ordnance. We have publications mm-hmm. or books and reports that teach us all the different ways we can approach this conventional piece of ordnance. We have all these markers and tools and we, we can literally see painted on them that says what they are. With a homemade device, what happens is they can be disguised. And so what they'll do is they'll create a device that functions just like I just explained to you in a loop circuit. And we'll go and we'll cut power sources out and we'll work those for six months. And then they'll go and they'll put some sort of booby trap in it to where when we go to cut the power source out, that actually blows it up. And so now they've booby trapped it and they've made it work in reverse of how we thought. And we have to be very, very careful to not get complacent or just do the same thing over and over again. So we have to have these rules and procedures that keep us safe because we always assume whatever action we're about to take, even if it worked yesterday, could be what sets the bomb off today. And usually that includes some sort of distance between ourselves and the bomb when we're taking action. So a lot of times what I would use is something that looked like a grappling hook or a seatbelt cutter and just 550 cord, which is like really heavy shoestring. And I would have to walk up to the bomb. But once I identified everything, I could set my tools up on the wires, walk back 30 feet, pull on that cord. And I would use different types of techniques of knots and tools and in different ways called hook and line to move things out of their place or cut wires or do something like that. Wow. 
That sounds very complicated and also extremely brave. So when you, again, this might be a dumb question, but when, you know, these, these bombs are designed to kind of be hidden in some, so I don't, maybe, maybe they want them to be in plain sight. I'm not really sure. But when you're going on to, into a battlefield and you are trying not to maybe step on these or, you know, trigger them off in, in some way, how do you know where to look and how do you even find them? Well, our primary resource for finding bombs in the ground is a metal detector. But about 2009, 2010, the enemy got smart and realized they could they could use semiconductors that didn't give a metallic uh, signature to put these bombs together. So it made it really hard to use a metal detector to find the bomb. Mm. The only piece of metal in that bomb would be the battery. And if they put enough of them in series, they could run them really far away to where if you're walking down a path and sweeping with a metal detector, you could step on the switch and get blown up and the battery actually wouldn't be close enough to give you a metallic signature. So our next best resource, honestly, are the local people. I mean, they 90% of the time, bombs aren't buried in someone's own backyard. The Taliban will go into a village that we have a presence at and they'll put bombs in the ground and they'll tell the local people, hey, we have bombs in the ground. Right now they're not hooked up. But if we catch you talking to the Americans, we'll hook them up and not tell you about it. But if you cooperate with us, we'll tell you where they are so you can stay safe. And eventually somebody doesn't want bombs in their neighborhood and they'll come tell us about them. And so locals letting us know where they are was a very valuable resource. And then last and certainly not least is our ability to predict. And so what I mean by that is if you're going to put a bomb in the ground for somebody to walk by and walk on, you're going to pick somewhere they walk where they're likely to go. Mm. And we call that a choke point. And so it became our job to help locate choke points. So if we're coming up on something that looks like, hey, if I were going to put a bomb on the ground, this is where I would do it. Then I would treat it like there's a bomb there and I would start working it from the outside in until I found it. Wow. Um, that's. Uh, is there any precautionary measures? I'm sure there are a bunch, but what's what's one of the biggest precautionary measures that you take before approaching an area where you think there might be one? Yeah, it's all about risk management. It's all about like making a wise decision because it's a complete give and take, right? Like, for example, the safest way ever would be to have a device with us that jams radio signals. It would be to have cameras that could see further. It would be to have uh, robots that could drive the path before we walk on it. It would be to have dogs that might sniff out the explosives before we get there. But now you're talking about five or six big efforts that take people and resources. And usually if we're on a patrol, there's eight to 13 of us, and we've got a job to do in, in a certain amount of time to get it done. So you look at what's called your, it's called your battlefield ordinance order of battle. And what that is, is it's a report that we generate that says, these are the types of bombs used in this area. This is how they're implemented. And um, and what we look at that and we say, okay, well, they don't use radio controlled bombs in this area. They haven't, they're probably not going to. We're not going to take the jamming device that we can take that takes two or three guys to operate. And then we say, okay, well, they don't use a type of explosive that our sniffing dogs can pick up. So there's no reason to bring a dog. We'll leave that behind. Mm. And then once we narrow down the tools we need, um, then we just implement those mitigating factors as we go about our mission. And I always like to end these with a question that's going to put you on the spot. But what do you think is the most important thing that just a regular person who maybe is not in the military, but, you know, sees what happened in Afghanistan and sees how brave our military members are? What's the most important thing for them to know? The most important thing for them to know is that these are 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 
maybe 29-year-olds at the oldest Mm. that are out on these battlefields in a foreign land learning about nuclear technology and physics and chemistry and using such a complicated skill set to keep their sons and daughters safe and bring them home. And that really should make you feel really good about who this country is, how it is, and who's willing to stand in the gap and defend us as, as the sheepdogs while we're out here just having a good time playing on our off. Have a healthy respect for what a very young but very selfless American can do and try to be more like them. Wow. Um, well, I know just from working with you, Joey, that I strive to be you every day. I know I would, ne- I will never <laughs> become that, but um, you know, you were and uh, one of those brave young men who who went over and and learned all of this stuff. And you said, you said, you know, you don't become a rocket scientist, but I'm telling you, just from talking to you, you sound like a rocket scientist when you're talking about disarming and you know the probabilities of a blast and how far away you have to be from it. Learning about the chemistry of the bomb, the physics behind the explosives. I mean. We really are appreciative of what you do, and thank you for your service, and thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to nerd out a little bit. You know what? Anytime I can hang out with you, I'm I'm happy. So um, be safe, and thank you again, Joey. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways from my conversation with Joey Jones. Number one. There's a difference between disarming and rendering a bomb safe. Now, when you disarm an explosive, that means you reverse the arming mechanisms. That way you can pick it up and move it. Rendering it safe would mean that you might disarm or blow it up. To do so, a bomb tech uses procedures to make that battlefield safe, like putting C4 on the explosive or shooting it from far away. Number two, a bomb technician's primary resource for finding IEDs on the ground is a metal detector. But Joey actually said once the enemy started to catch on, they began using semiconductors that don't give off metallic signals. So really the best resource is the local people. He told me the Taliban would hide bombs in the locals' backyards and threaten to activate them if the locals were caught talking to American soldiers. But Joey said some of the people would take that chance because they didn't want those explosives near their homes. And number three, the training to be a bomb technician is a lot of learning. These bomb techs are memorizing the chemistry of a bomb. They're studying the physics behind the explosives. They have to know about the different types of math based off of the probabilities of a blast and how far away you have to be away from it. I mean, the job is dangerous. It's complicated. It's brave. And we salute all of our men and women who put their lives on the line every day to keep us safe. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on bomb technicians and IEDs. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcasts Network. Class dismissed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.